Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him. And let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. The word of the Lord. I was reading this passage of Lamentations 3 aloud during this march for mourning and lamentation that we had several months ago in the wake of the death of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, and others. Some pastors here in Orlando gathered us together uh, to march down the street in Paramore, not as protest, but as lament for the reality of the sins of our nation. 
And in that spirit of lamentation, I felt it important that we would turn to Scripture to really hear the words of those who have come before us, who give us this pattern of how to lament, how to cry out to God in all that we are experiencing and all that we're feeling. And I was kind of yelling some of these passages that I remember um, from the Old Testament that, that have this, this attitude of lament and weeping publicly and, and kind of going hoarse, trying to get these words out, trying to allow my whole self to come behind them. And as I finished reading this portions of Lamentations 3, I heard behind me these five teenage girls talking about bad haircuts that they had just gotten. And if the situation hadn't been the way that it was, that this being a moment of, of national reconciliation, of of recognizing the pain and the suffering of our neighbors, it would have almost been funny. But as I began to, to look around at hundreds of Christians, of fellow brothers and sisters from all around the state, all around Central Florida, gathering together for this march that's intended for mourning, for lament, I couldn't help but recognize how uncomfortable so many of us were with what we were there to do. And I think so often, like the Israel of the Old Testament, like Judah, our faith is held in a way that we are often self-absorbed and we assume that we're doing just fine and we turn a blind eye to the things that God might be calling us to lament because we already assume he's on our side. We already assume that God approves of what we're doing and how we see the world. And it is until those moments when we are rushed with travesty, with catastrophe, that we begin to recognize that maybe we haven't had it together this whole time. This is why we continue on in this series, What to Do When Everything is Terrible. Several weeks ago, our friend Xavier came to speak to us about the Psalms of lament, the importance of kind of getting it out before God, of laying our hearts on our sleeves and asking God to enter into that space with us. Last week, one of our elders, Jenna, spoke to us about the Psalms that are of penitence, of us confessing to God the sin that we carry that weighs us so heavily, but not as it just about our personal repentance, but it's also communal, that as a communal people, we are responsible for the sins among our people within the church itself across, uh, across the country right now, but also throughout time. We are responsible for those things, and it is necessary for us to confess and repent before God so that we can live more deeply in what it means to be faithful to Him. And so today, we're going to be looking at uh, sort of two books, uh, Lamentations and Jeremiah, who were both written by the same prophet. And so I want to give a little overview of who Jeremiah is, kind of set up how to read um, what his scripture is, and then kind of take it a little bit farther. Like, okay, we've talked about, okay, it's important to lament, and we've talked about, oh, it's important to confess and repent in these kinds of, in these moments in time. But what's on the other side of that? What is the actual work that God is doing when we enter into these practices? So first I'll give a little bit of an overview of Jeremiah. We often call him the weeping prophet, that his ministry was primarily seen as one where he is weeping, he's lamenting over Judah, over Jerusalem and the reality of what's happening there. So Jeremiah was born at about 650 BC, 
He was called into the ministry at a time when he felt that he was much too young. He was 40 years in the prophetic ministry, and his entire career is considered an abject failure. So, uh, for those of you who tend to measure uh, your effectiveness in ministry by all these different paradigms, just know that one of the greatest prophets of all time was a complete failure in his entire life. Nobody listened to him. Nobody cared at what he was saying. In fact, many people were rather offended and went to great lengths to make his life a misery. During Jeremiah's ministry, there were five different kings of Judah, all of whom rejected his pleas to come back to Yahweh. During this time, we saw the fall of the Assyrian Empire that had its kind of fingers in the, in the power workings of Judah. We see the rise of Babylon, and then Babylon choosing to pick a fight with Egypt, and right conveniently in the middle is Palestine, Judah, Israel. And so, Jeremiah is witnessing all of this political turmoil in his time as his own country is being handed off between empires where puppet leaders are being put in place to kind of quell and maintain the status quo. And at the time of Jeremiah, the other prophets that are around him, that are around the kings, keep saying, no, 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 everything's fine. This is going to be peace. And Jeremiah is the one voice that's saying everything is terrible. But not only do we get this vision from Jeremiah of of what God is speaking to Judah, but we also get the personal experience of Jeremiah as he's living out this ministry that he's called to. And there's a really amazing poem in Jeremiah chapter 20. I highly encourage you to go and see it where Jeremiah is dealing with the reality of being an abject failure. And it starts off like this. I love this. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. And he goes on to kind of pick a fight with the Almighty and saying, what have you called me to do with my life? Is this really it? But as he's continuing to work it out, he says, but I can't stay silent. Because if I do, it's, it's, your word is like burning inside of me. It's like it's in my bones and I need to get it out. And we see Jeremiah so beautifully wrestling with the divine, wrestling with this calling upon his life. And so towards the end of Jeremiah's ministry, in about 590 BC, Babylon sacks Judah after there's an uprising, people trying to maintain their independence. Um, The Babylonians destroy the temple. Uh, They carry away all the treasures and the aristocracy into enslavement in Babylon. And so Jeremiah's ministry starts to change to, okay, how do we live in exile? Which, as I've said many times before, is something that I've been kind of meditating on through this, this period in history that we're in right now. And then you, maybe you know that famous verse from Jeremiah 29, 11, um, that says, consider the plans that I have for you, plans to, to prosper you and not to harm you. And a lot of times that's one of those verses that we really love to like, you know, knit onto a pillow as a positive saying. But what it really means in context is, hey, you're in exile and you're going to be there for a while longer. So go ahead and hunker down and be faithful, and I'm going to call you back when time is ready. And so this is kind of the tail end of Jeremiah's ministry. Later, at the end of his life, some fellow Jews actually kidnap him and take him to Egypt against his own will, and he dies there with no one having ever really listened to what he had to say. At one point in his life, his entire collection of poetry is burned by one of the kings who hates what he has to say and has to rewrite all of his poems. But what we see in Jeremiah is that in a time of political upheaval within Judah 
and in the surrounding kind of super nations. He's calling out the hypocrisy of the supposedly uh, religious elite of his own nation. And he's also calling an invitation to repent for all people. And I wonder if that right there actually gives us an ear to hear what Jeremiah might be saying for us in our own time. And so it's held that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, um, which is five poems that are kind of gathered together that were written after the destruction of the temple towards the tail end of Jeremiah's life. And Lamentations is a powerful, powerful book. And it's one of those that many of us don't read. First of all, because it doesn't feel good or it doesn't really seem like it has anything applicable to us. But Lamentations is not just a personal cry of repentance. It's a cry for a people who have veered off the rails because they felt entitled to God's favor or they simply left him behind when they hit a wall. Even now, perhaps you're beginning to recognize how much Jeremiah has to say to us in this day and age. And those five poems essentially go like this. Everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. Everything is, well, God's great. Uh, No, never mind. Everything's terrible. Everything's terrible. That's the kind of the five poems that we have there. But um, in Jewish literary writing, the, 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 the climax of a poem is not found at the end, like we would normally put it, but it's actually in the middle. So if you want to get into the real juice, the real truth of what's happening in Lamentations, he puts it right there in the middle in chapter three and in the middle of the middle, which is the line um, that says, you know, you're mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And as I was thinking about lamentations and some of these other really difficult passages of scripture that we've been wrestling with in this time, I was trying to think of a modern analogy and then I remembered that this is how the blues operate. I, I, love, I love the blues, the older, the better. And it was, I never knew exactly what it was about that music that was so appealing, but I recognized that the, the, the poems and lamentations, that's Jeremiah singing the blues. I want to play a clip of uh, one of my all-time favorite blues songs. This is Still a Fool by Muddy Waters. Well, lies too as two trains running I love the way that that Muddy sets up that song. There's two trains and neither of them are for me. One of the voices that's been so prophetic to me, especially recently, has been Dr. Cornell West, who is a philosopher, a thinker, uh, a theologian. And Cornell West says that the blues is catastrophe lyrically expressed. But it doesn't allow catastrophe to have the last word. And Dr. West partners the blues with the words of Plato that the unexamined life is not worth living. That the kind of life that we're called to is a critical reflection of the reality of our lives in a way that it has existential consequences. 
And when we look at the, these blues men and these blues women of times past, we see the audacity to name the reality of the life that they're living, but not allow that to have the last word, but instead to seek out the place of hope, hope that needs to be fought for. And I think that there's something so powerful in this for you and I when we consider what it is that we are called to do when everything is terrible, which is, first of all, to recognize when things are, in fact, terrible, to not pull our punches, to not necessarily let God off the line with our little theological tropes, to not squinch our eyes in the name of faith and say, everything's okay, everything's okay, and pretend like nothing's actually happening to us, but to allow catastrophe to be expressed, but not to allow it to have the last word. I've been thinking a lot this year about maturity. If you remember, our, our, our vision for the year was uh, growing in maturity for the sake of the world, maturity in Christ. And so what do we mean when we mean maturity? You know, when I was a little kid, I thought being an adult meant that you kind of had all the answers. You knew how the world works. I remember being, you know, a 10-year-old kid and you know your backyard and you know how to get to school, but there seems so much more out there that you don't know. And as I got older... I kept waiting for that to happen. I, when is the moment <clears throat> when I become an adult? When I kind of have it together, when I kind of know how things work, when I have uh, this understanding of, of the world, of myself and my place in it. And, and so maturity really became about being in control. And I'm 36 and starting to realize, well, maybe that's not what it means to be an adult. But then I began to realize something far deeper and truer about the journey that we're called to when we follow Jesus. And spiritual growth, which is the vehicle for maturity, really only happens through orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And that there is no magic pill to maturity. Orientation that we kind of have an understanding of how the world works and who we are. Disorientation, where something happens usually outside of us that causes us to question the, our first understanding. And then reorientation, that if we maneuver that middle space well, if we are faithful to God in that space, God actually reorients us back to what is true. So I want to break those three things down and then talk about what it is that we do in those situations. Number one, orientation begins as we are building a worldview, an understanding of how the world works, but we build that out of our ego. This is what your ego is for. Um, your ego is a gift in early childhood, but it because it places you at the center of your own story and you're understanding who you are in comparison to your parents and then your school and your teachers and this gradually widening circles of, un of recognizing that there is something more beyond yourself. And this is something we all go through. We construct this idea of self. We construct this idea of worldview. And that's tremendously affected by all sorts of things that we've spoken of before. Your family of origin, your religion, your nationality, your race or ethnicity, your gender. All of these things are ways in which we construct a sense of self and our self and our place in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that journey of orientation. But what happens if the journey only stops there is that before long, we enter into a self-absorbed spirituality where we believe we're still at the center stage. 
and it's still about us. And, and worst of all, our relationship to God is based on what we get out of him. And that's when God becomes that giant ATM in the sky who's supposed to just answer our prayers and give us exactly what we think it is that we need when really, if we're honest, it's about our desires. But then something happens. And maybe it's a friend gets cancer. Maybe it's a classmate commits suicide. Maybe it's a parent that loses a job. Maybe it's that we just, we read a book or a podcast that, that just totally freaked us out. Whatever it might be. But something happens where we become disoriented. That who we thought that we were, who we thought God was, and how we thought the world works, all of a sudden comes crumbling down around us. And we feel that sense of wooziness that comes by saying, wait a minute, I thought I had this all figured out. I had all of the pieces in place to build this structure to understand the world. And everything was so crisp and clear and safe. And then this thing happened and this external reality has now ruptured my internal reality. Our assumptions are called into question, specifically about God. So disorientation happens when our status quo is shaken and we find ourselves in existential exile. I mean exile in the sense of we were home and now we're not, we're somewhere else, we're someplace else, but it's not geographic, it's existential. I thought I knew who I was. I thought I knew who God was. And if we're honest, many of us are in this place right now because of everything that's going on this year and all of the ripple effect of that on the global scale with the pandemic, on the national scale with politics and race, on a communal scale with us trying to figure out how do we remain faithful to be who God's called us to be on a personal level. My goodness, the amount of conversations I've had with some of you about the disagreements and the, and the vitriol that's happening within your own family units, it's, it's almost too much to bear. And some of you wrestling with this, entering into new ideas or questioning some of those assumptions and others feeling that temptation to retreat back into what you knew in order to protect yourself from feeling a certain way. My goodness, are we not in a moment of disorientation? And we've been taught so often that the place of disorientation is not where we're supposed to be. That's something that's anathema to our faith. That's like this other thing, this other place. And if we're feeling that, we better get away from it as quickly as possible because that's not where God wants us to live. But so often what happens, unfortunately, in that case is when we hit this wall in our faith, we feel guilty for it or we feel shame or we feel like God's not there. And so we actually retreat. And we try to go back into our originally oriented worldviews or we actually abandon the, the worldview altogether and say, well, God must not be real. Who I thought I was must not really be true. I'm going to go and seek and find other voices that are going to give me that sense of confidence. But I think what we see in Jeremiah, a lifetime of lamenting, of weeping, of calling people to account, of constantly being disoriented by tears, but always coming back to God, even if it was to pick a fight with him, is that disorientation is an integral part of our faith journey. And indeed, I think it's perhaps at least the most powerful place where our maturing faith develops, if not the only place. 
Because if we're honest, it's through those, the friction, it's through the questioning, it's through the wrestling that if we stick in it as the substance of our faith, we actually grow in our lived-in understanding of who God truly is. And that leads us to the process of reorientation. That reorientation happens when we let go of our suppositions and actually trust God to lead us home. Do you realize how easy it is for you and I to say that we're trusting God, but what we're really trusting is our worldview? We're really trusting our ideologies. We're really trusting Bible verses. We're really trusting in people and tribes and political parties, and we're calling it God. I don't remember if it was John Luther or John Calvin, but one of the great reformers said that we are little idol factories. We're constantly developing these little idols, these little stand-ins for God, and God is constantly inviting us to smash those idols that once, as soon as we have an understanding of what God is like, we put you know, a little, uh, a little you know, um, porcelain representation of it up on our shelves and go, look, there's, that's it. That's what God is. I feel good now. I've got it figured out. But that reorientation process is us learning to let go of the things that make us feel safe, that give us a good understanding of the world until they don't. And then learning how to actually trust God, the real and living God, the untamed God, the God that is revealed in Jesus to lead us home, to bring us back out of exile. Do you realize you need to enter the desert in order to return home? You have to go into exile to do the work in the place where it's just you and God so that when you come back home, you never take it for granted. You never replace intimacy with God um, with just following along with the lines. Reorientation purges us of idolatry and our egocentric self-images where we let go of this idea that God exists to give us stuff and we begin to allow God to be who he really is. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We call this process sanctification. And I love in the Eastern church, our Greek brothers and sisters have this idea that the Holy Spirit is always a fire, the unidirectional fire as the love of God in action. And when we submit to that fire of the Holy Spirit, it becomes this refining fire that's purging us and, and burning out of us all these impurities. But when we resist the fire, the love of God in action through the Holy Spirit, it becomes this burning fire that scalds us because we're not submitting to it. And you see, it's not about whether God's attitude towards us, it's our attitude towards him that determines whether it's a refining fire or it's a, a fire that burns us. Because it's within us to submit to him. God's move is always love. He cannot not love. And this is what Jeremiah's telling us in Lamentations and saying, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Your steadfast or everlasting love, as he says in Jeremiah 31. But we just didn't always realize that. Sometimes we allow that love to burn us because we fought against it in order to protect our egos, in order to protect our worldviews. 
And the amazing thing is, when we allow the Holy Spirit to burn these impurities out of us, that sometimes we believe old things, but in new ways, that we never really knew what grace was. And sometimes we believe new things, but it's not because we're grasping onto more worldviews, it's because the Lord is actually leading us. It's just wonderful little saying in uh, Zen Buddhism that at first, the river is a river and the mountain is a mountain. And then the river is not a river and the mountain is not a mountain. And then the river is a river and the mountain is a mountain. We need those periods of disorientation to bring us back to what is true, even if it's the thing that we always thought that we believed. And I think in all of this, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. There's another way to say it. Life, death, and resurrection. This is the pattern that we are called to if we're to be shaped like Jesus. For you and I, as Jesus followers, to be a cruciform, cross-shaped people means this is the necessary pattern of our lives. It's not an option that we pass through disorientation, that we experience the reality of death. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, when he enters into the city of Jerusalem, we see for, for a week that he's going about preaching and enacting these prophetic symbols like cleansing the temple and, and, and crying over the city of Jerusalem, lamenting and saying, oh, how I wish I could gather you under my wings like a mother hen with her chicks. And if we listen closely, we actually hear in Jesus in his final days, the words, the attitude of Jeremiah. Jesus is reenacting the ministry of Jeremiah. That where it was a failure in his time, it's now being redeemed as the salvation of Jerusalem and indeed the whole world. And Jesus speaks to us of this pattern. There's this one cosmic universal story that's continually being reenacted of life, death, and resurrection. In John 12, it says that Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Things have to die in the kingdom in order to be reborn. But they're not just replicated, they're actually multiplied. There's more life on the other side of death. And in this little succinct passage, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Not only is it a prophetic pronouncement of what's about to happen to him, he says, this is also a prophetic pronouncement of what it means to follow me. That for you to love your life, which means that you hold on to your original egocentric orientation at all costs, you're going to lose it because it won't sustain you. But if you allow that to die, if you let go of all of your assumptions about who God is and who you are and how the world works and, and, and what it means to love people, if you let go of those things, if you allow them to die, they will die well. 
and in their place something new will be born, something better, something kingdom. The reality is that you are going to hit a wall in your faith many times over. This is not a one and done thing. So it's better that you go ahead and expect it. Expect the times of disorientation. Expect the times of confusion. Expect the times of feeling far from God. Expect the times of not having a clear answer or a clear direction. But rather than choosing to, separ- to compartmentalize and separate those things from your journey with God, recognize that they're actually the fertile soil for you to meet God all over again, to let go, to trust Him, and to see new life come. So what do we do? Isn't that the question? What do we do with disorientation, with the times where things are dying in us? I think, again, when we turn our ear, incline our ears to Jeremiah, we recognize that God's faithfulness is both eternal, talking about that steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, and it's also particular. It's new every morning to weather the times of chaos and disorientation and death. We must develop a rule of life to bind ourselves to him. That it's almost like the, the, you know, the mast of a ship in the middle of a storm that sailors used to lash themselves. They tied themselves to the, to the mast in the storm so that it would, they would trust the boat to carry them through to the other side. And so what do we do? When we turn to Jeremiah, he reminds us, first of all, that the best thing that we can do to weather the storm is nothing. Yeah. Hey, y'all Americans who are always developing the plans and the how-tos and the self-help books, who are always coming to me and going, okay, what's next? Like, tell me how to do it. Let's go. Let's task operate this thing. Let's, like, let's brainstorm and let's manifest destiny the hell out of our relationship with God. Jeremiah says nothing. He says, it's good. It is good for you to sit quietly and wait for the salvation of the Lord. Is that not what trust means? Is that not what it really is? And so we have to slow down our spirituality in times of chaos and disorientation. And so we develop a rule of life. The word that's used for for this rule comes from the Greek word for a lattice. If you've ever seen like in a, um, like, uh, in a, in a vineyard, you know, there's these lattices that help the plant to grow up and spread out in a really healthy way. It provides a structure for thriving. And we need a rule of life to help us in those times of chaos. But you've got to recognize that with spiritual practice, with rules of life, it's not about doing something because when you have this attitude of just doing stuff, you're actually just massaging your ego. You're making it more about you and what you can do to fix your reality and to help yourself, which again is so like woven into the American project that we don't even recognize that we're doing it. But we enter into self-righteousness when we think I can dig myself out of the hole that I'm in. That a rule of life is not about us doing something, but it's about us opening ourselves to someone. And we recognize that God's goodness 
It's unwavering, this steadfast love that Jeremiah talks about. But it's also particular, that it's new every morning. And a rule of life should help us in both ways. That it help us through a long season of understanding and, and recognizing the steadfast love of God. But it's also something that we have to pick into because it's new every morning. So there's kind of three general suggestions that I give for a rule of life. Number one, something that is that quiet surrender to God. It is good for you to sit and wait in silence for the salvation of the Lord. And what this does is it countermands our need to jump, to act, to develop a plan, to scheme, to figure it out, but to sit quietly before the Lord and just allow his presence to be the dominant experience of our lives, to enter into loving union with him. Number two, to lean into faithful community, this idea of fellowship. So often when we feel disorientation, we, we feel like we have to do that alone because we have that shame of what we're going through. But to actually lean into our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to cry out alongside of them, to share our experience, or for them to come alongside of us and just to affirm what we're feeling, to not feel the need to fix us or give us the plan is so powerful. And then thirdly, to seek out biblical truth, to give us the trajectory. What is true right now, even when I don't feel it? We see this in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And this is a consistent theme through the prophets that there's a scroll that they eat. Or he says here, your words, I ate them. I made your word part of me. It became my sustenance. It became my life. And to seek out good biblical truth not the cheap version of it where we're just picking out little verses and then sewing them onto pillows so it sits on the settee and kind of reminds us that everything's okay. But when we really immerse ourselves in biblical truth, it gives us a trajectory that we know where it is that we're headed. We don't have to make it up as we go along. And so before we transition into worship, I want us to give us a moment just to pause with all of this because I know it's a lot. And just to sit with the Lord with this question, where am I experiencing disorientation right now? Where do I feel chaos, confusion, darkness? Where do I feel those feelings of Jeremiah where he's wrestling with the reality of who God is or who I thought that I was or how I thought the world works? And do not rush to try to find an answer to cover over that feeling, but just to sit with that. So I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask that Holy Spirit, the refining fire to come and to reveal to us where's one place in our lives right now where we're experiencing disorientation. We're just going to say what he has to say. And so Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jeremiah that although it was a failure in his time, it has spoken so much truth and so much hope to so many of us for so many thousands of years. And so, Lord, we come before you right now in the particular, not just the universal sense of your love, but right now that your mercies are new every morning. And I ask you to speak to each of your dear ones here today to show us so gently but truthfully something deep within us where we're experiencing that sense of disorientation, where there's a big question mark where there's a feeling of anger or doubt, of dismay, despair, anxiety. Speak to us, Lord, for we're listening. 
the second question. How can I posture myself to lean into your faithfulness in quiet submission, new every morning, in faithful community, seeking the goodness of kingdom friendship and biblical truth, eating your words as our sustenance. Lord, give us one element that we need for our rule of life in this season. thank you that all things work together for our good when we submit to you. So Lord, bless this time as we continue on in worship. I pray that you would be doing something within us, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us, working through us, purging us of all of those small ideas of who you are all of those egocentric ideas of who we are and all those fear-based ideas we have of how we think the world works so that we can be a little bit more faithful to you today than we were the day before. God, may all things ultimately be to your glory. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.